Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am discussing the case of 37-year-old Karen Bodine from Washington State. Karen was found murdered at the entrance to a gravel pit in 2007. Her body was pretty much in plain sight. Despite the case being featured at CrimeCon's 2019 CrowdSolve event, renewed interest from the police, and her family fighting for her, her case remains unsolved. Karen's daughter Carly reached out to me directly to ask for help in getting her mother's story out there. She is working so hard for her mom, and really just wants this story to be heard. There was little traditional news coverage of Karen's case until just a few years ago, and Carly isn't really happy with the way that her mother has been depicted. I really just wanted to give her an opportunity to share her mother's story, so you will hear from Carly a lot in this episode. Let's get into it. First, let's start with a little background from Carly about her mom. My mom grew up in Tomwater, Washington, which today is a small town, but back in her time was even smaller town. Um, she originally was in town uh, on a house on Cherry Lane, which is like right downtown Tomwater, and it's a cute little picturesque neighborhood you know little white picket fences and all that stuff and it was an adorable little house but my grandparents um slowly saved up money and got better jobs and you know just did the whole american dream thing and they moved out to the country and they bought 10 acres and they built their dream home and my mom when she was still very young moved out into the house out in the country but it was a very tiny town everybody knew everybody i love that was she popular in high school she absolutely was and that was the beautiful thing about my mom and her popularity she didn't have just one click she wasn't the cheerleader or the drama queen or the math nerd she was everything She had a friend from every style or every group in high school. Like, she was the one that genuinely loved everybody. Like, I've heard it said from many people, and I can tell you it because I've experienced it myself. When she walked in a room, it instantly made it brighter, especially if you got to hear her laugh. I mean, her laugh was so genuine, and it just... It was contagious and it was beautiful. Like, and she had a few different styles of laughs. And uh, she's, I think, one of the only people that can make a snort seem cute. But if you really got her going, she would snort when she laughed, and it was adorable. Um, she she brought people together. She, I mean, she could have an enemy every now and again, of course. But for the most part, I mean, she really 
she was a loving person. I mean, she was very fierce, too, to her convictions, so don't make her angry, because she will stand her ground. Um, but she's also the most loving and caring person that you would ever meet. And that was true from the day she was born up until the day she died. Um, on Mother's Day, when, you know, your mom comes to school for Valentine's Day and stuff, and you have kids saying, I wish that was my mom. You know, you're like, I'm pretty lucky. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Karen Bodine had three children with her boyfriend Danny Isaacson. Taylor, Tanner, and Carly. Danny and Karen definitely had an on-and-off-again type of relationship, and they would separate and get back together several times over the years, and both struggled with addiction issues. Eventually, their children were taken from their custody and placed with their maternal grandparents who would later legally adopt them. Here is Carly describing what it was like growing up with her mom. We had our ups and downs. Um, honestly, she battled with addiction, um, so sometimes there were times where she wasn't around because she was either in rehab or she was actively using, um, but honestly, for more than not, she was around, and she was at our sporting events, or she was hanging out with us at home making cookies or doing our hair or playing soccer, or picking blackberries with us, or entertaining us in any way possible. I mean, my mom always had gum and lipstick in her purse, always different flavors and new colors of lipstick. And I thought that was just my mom, you know? Well, now growing up, I'm thinking about it, and I have friends that have kids that I'm close to, and I have, you know, that I call nieces and nephews and stuff, and and I kind of do similar things for them, and I'm like, wait, Pretty sure my mom put a new pack of gum in there before she came out here because she knew she was seeing the kids. Like, I mean, that's how far she thought ahead. Like, she made sure, you know, because she knew I loved my lipstick and everything. She knew there was a new lipstick because she knew I liked to look in her purse. I mean, she thought ahead about stuff like that. Like, even, even when she was using, you know, she would still have her gum and her lipstick and her little snacks and whatever. And okay, she couldn't get a ride to one of our games. She'll walk seven miles in the rain to get to it. That was my mom. 
So yeah, we had struggles, we had ups and downs, but my mom was a mom no matter what. She was there no matter what. I mean, if she wasn't there in person, she was making phone calls or writing letters. Um, she was a lot of things. Uh, she loved her fashion, so she was definitely a fashionista. Um, she was pretty good at cooking. She was very good at sewing. I mean, she literally made some of her own clothes, like, on the sewing machine. It was amazing. Um, but I believe, like, in the core of her being, she was, she was a mother, and you could not take that away from her. Um, when... When she was using, like, heavily, um, especially towards the end, um, like, when she wasn't around us, she carried around a baby doll, and she, like, literally took care of it. Like, she made sure it was warm and had it a little bottle and everything because she she was taken away from her kids so she needed something to nurture and have like she was a mother like that's just who she was and i think that's why she was such an animal lover when she was such a child she nurtured and cared for every animal she'd get her hands on i mean even growing up we had lots of pets but i mean that's just she just wanted she just wanted someone to care and love and dote on, and she wanted someone to love and care and dote on her back. Despite not having physical custody of her children, Karen continued to see them. She even got a job in their school cafeteria, serving them extra chicken nuggets whenever she could. Here is Carly discussing seeing her mom a bit more. Even though technically, legally, we were adopted by my grandparents, if my mom was doing well, my grandma would relinquish us back to my mom and be like, here you go. You you deserve your kids. Here's your kids, you know? Um, and then if my mom wasn't doing well or something, my grandma would take, take us back. Um, but there's also many times where my mom was doing well and my grandma was just like, how about you just live at home? And so we, we would live at, all live together at home, which was pretty cool too. Um, don't get me wrong. I mean, my mom and grandma fought. They were mother and daughter. I mean, I fight with my grandma because she is like a mom to me. And as much as I love my mother, of course, I fought with my mom sometimes too. I mean, that's just what human beings do. You're not all sunshine and rainbows all the time you know so there was the occasional fight between my mom and grandma but for the most part it was pretty harmonious and just pretty normal and, and natural even when carly's grandmother told her to stay away from her mom she would sneak away to see her even if it was just for a few minutes karen would eventually separate from danny permanently and eventually she began dating a man named kevin they, too, would date off and on for a few years. In 2006, Karen was living with her parents and her children. But by September, she'd moved into Kevin's house in Thurston County. Carly believes that at that point, her mom stopped using drugs for a few months. 
but she admits that it was hard to tell sometimes. Near the end, it became pretty obvious that Karen was using again. Here is Carly describing the last time she saw her mother. So, I believe, um, sadly, it was one of those trips after school that I stayed for a few minutes and hung out with her. I believe one of the last words she ever said to me, I believe one of the last words she ever said to me was five more minutes. Carly, stay five more minutes. And of course, me being a busy teenager, having to go shopping or play with my boyfriend or do homework or whatever I was doing, had to go run off. I mean, those things happen. You can't blame yourself. I know that doesn't make it better or any easier, but you know. Yeah, you can't blame yourself, but knowing that and doing that are two completely different things. On Friday, January 19th, 2007, Karen and Kevin get into an argument. Carly told me that she does believe it became physical. The police are called, and ultimately, Karen is asked to leave the residence. And a no-contact order is put into place. So, Karen packs a few things and begins walking down the street to a mutual friend's house. This friend is Jim Hunt. Kevin and Jim apparently played music together. So, Karen was very familiar with him his home, and some of the people that hung around. So my mom packs a few things and heads down the street. Because she was 37 when she died. I am close to that age. I'm in my mid-30s. Honestly, right now, if I got in a huge fight with my boyfriend, I don't think I would call my grandma. I mean, that would be really embarrassing. I wouldn't want to do that. I'd probably call a friend or something. In, in reality, I mean, that's really what I'd do. I'd probably call one of my girlfriends and be like, I stay the night. I probably wouldn't call my grandma. So I think my mom thought like, well, okay. I'll walk down the street to Jim's house. I know a few pe- I know Jim and I know a few people there. I'll let this blow over over the weekend till court, you know, and figure stuff out, you know? And, and she had, you know, from being around there so much, she had met other people there and everything. So she felt okay going over there. She felt comfortable going over there. She figured like, oh, hey, it's right down the street. It's far enough away that I'm not bothering Kevin, but it's close enough that I can come back when I can come back when we settle things down. You know, like, it's it was kind of almost, like, the logical thing to do. It's the closest place she probably knew where to go, you know? I mean, <laughs> like, if she knew she was going to get murdered and those were her last two days, I guarantee you she wouldn't be skipping on over there. According to Carly, there was a lot of drug use in Jim's house and a ton of people coming in and out throughout the weekend. When Karen gets to Jim's, she actually spends quite a bit of time in the only bathroom. This apparently upset some of the people in the house, and Jim ends up asking Karen to leave the house for a bit. When Karen begins walking around the neighborhood, someone calls the police. Here is Carly describing this in more detail. 
you know, she was distraught. She was walking down the street pretty close to Jim's house. The middle of January, pretty late in the day, not at nighttime, but like later in the evening, getting dark. Um, and it's, she wasn't wearing appropriate clothes. Like, I'm not talking about scandalous, but like, they weren't warm enough. Like, the person that called, called because they were concerned that this tiny woman that they've seen on the sidewalk for a while now, like, literally might be, like, freezing or, like, they don't know what's wrong. Like, she's, she's crying and she's just walking up and down the street. And so the cop stops and checks on her and asks, you know, can I, can I take you home? And my mom again goes, no, I don't want to go to my mom's. Like, I'm fine. I just, you know, leave me alone. And the cop left her alone. I mean, he didn't know she was going to go get murdered. You know, like you said, 2020 hindsight. 2020 hindsight's a bitch. Like, what if? What if he called a women's shelter? What if he called an advocate? What if he drove her to a women's shelter? What if, you know, but that didn't happen. She just said, I'm fine. I'm an adult. I didn't do anything wrong. Let me out of your car. And he goes, okay. Eventually, Karen returns to Jim's house and stays the night. On Sunday, January 21st, Karen is seen by a Lacey police officer around 9 p.m., The officer stated that they left Karen alone after she said that she was walking home. Other witnesses would confirm that Karen was last seen at Jim's house that night. On Monday morning, now January 22nd, just after daybreak, Karen Bodine's body is found by a passing motorist. This is at the entrance to a gravel pit in Rochester. She was only about 15 feet from the road. She was completely nude, lying on her back with her head on a displaced vehicle seat. She had been strangled, and there were other marks on her body. There was no indication that she was sexually assaulted, and none of her personal items like her purse or wallet were found with her. It also seemed pretty apparent that whoever put Karen there wasn't really trying to hide her body. She was pretty much out in the open. This area in general was known to be a dumping ground of sorts, and was behind the dump itself, so there was a good bit of traffic to this area. It was by no means out of the way. One of the most tragic things I read about Karen's case was that her parents actually drove by the scene that morning, having no idea that their daughter had been found dead. They weren't even really supposed to be there. See, Karen's father Dave had an appointment that morning, and he always took the freeway, but he'd asked his wife Sharon to come with him that day, and she insisted on taking the old way, avoiding the freeway altogether. Dave was actually a firefighter for decades in this community, so when he drove by the road and saw that it was blocked off with a ton of officers slowing down traffic, he actually turned to Sharon and said that whatever was happening definitely wasn't good. Later that evening, detectives showed up at their door to give them the bad news. Their daughter was dead. It was Karen that they'd blocked the roads for. Life is tragic like that. There was obviously no way for Sharon to know that by insisting on taking the old way to her husband's appointment, that they'd be driving right by their daughter's crime scene. But I mean, what are the chances? 
It's hard to tell exactly what happened in the investigation early on. To be honest, it doesn't seem like much. The initial headlines about Karen's death didn't even mention her name. They actually called her a homeless prostitute, much to the dismay of her family. They also used Karen's mugshot instead of asking her family for a better photo. This really hurt Carly. This is what she's been trying to correct about her mother's case to this day. She admits that her mother wasn't perfect, but she was loved, and she loved her family. I know law enforcement is keeping a lot of information under wraps in Karen's case. I'll talk about that in a minute. But it seems like there were really only a few witness statements that came out. People in the area confirmed that Karen was found in a pretty popular dumping area for things like stolen cars or hazardous materials. But the shining piece of information here appears to be a car that was spotted near where Karen's body was found about an hour before she was discovered. So unfortunately, it was confusing then, and it's got even more twisted 14, almost 15 years later. Um, there's two similar descriptions. Um, now this, there's, I have a few theories about this. It could have just been mistaken identities, like they thought they saw something or whatever, or it could have been two separate vehicles. So we don't, we really don't know, but now I'll get on with, with it. Um, it was a, like, late 1980s or early 1990s Datsun car, um, and if you're not familiar with a Datsun, just Google Datsun. They're very distinct, like very distinct looking. And this one was brown, like dirt brown, like uh, not tan, like more almost, I'm sorry, but like almost like poop brown, like or bark brown or I don't know, like a very ugly, distinct color brown. But also there's the theory that it could have been really muddy and it might be orange, like a dark, you know, the dark orange from like the 80s and 90s. It could have been dark orange and really muddy is another theory. So keep that in mind. Just keep it in mind. Um, so it's either a 1980s brown or orange, but very dirty, Dotson car or a truck with a lighter camper shell the the front of the car and the truck look very similar and the car or the truck is a very small truck um but the only distinction about the truck was that it had a lighter colored camper shell on it um and i will also say this that I guarantee you for a fact that someone that was hanging around my mom's circle that may have seen her that that weekend had a brown Dotson car. Since I was able to find so little about the early days of the investigation, I wanted to ask Carly directly about that too. No, I've just seen some some statements and news articles that are like they suspect some people at the house blah 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 but I didn't I didn't find a lot of information on that so that's kind of what I was trying to fill in because it 
from what you read online, it's as if there was no investigation. It's like there pretty much wasn't. That's because there wasn't. The detective on the case was retiring. Like he was literally retiring when he was on our case. So most of the time when I called him, he was golfing or fishing or whatever, and he never returned my calls. She's talking about Detective Steve Hamilton, by the way. Not to be confused with Detective Mickey Hamilton that would later take over the investigation. Carly told me that a few years later, she was actually pulled over by Steve Hamilton. He thought he'd recognized her last name and asked if he'd arrested her before. When she reminded him that he'd worked her mother's case, he let her go with just a warning. Honestly, I would be hurt by that. This is Thurston County. It's small. There aren't a lot of cases. In fact, as of 2019, they only had about 30 unsolved homicide, missing persons, or suspected homicide cases. I don't know. Maybe he had a bad memory. Or just didn't remember in the moment. But I understand why this would further solidify to Carly that her mother's case wasn't treated as a priority. With there being so little public information, I of course wanted to ask about these people that hung around Jim's house, since this was the last place that Karen Bodine was seen alive. I asked Carly if her mother was friends with any of the people that would hang around Jim's house. I think she thought she may have been better friends with some of the ones around than she was. Because like I said, I don't think she would have ever dreamt of going there if she knew she was in danger at all. Even if she was just going to get hurt, not even killed. I don't think she ever would have tried to go there. So I think she falsely thought she had better friends than she did. In some of the early articles about Karen's case, authorities do allude to the fact that there were people that had information about Karen's death, but they didn't reveal much more than that. From there, the trail appears to kind of go cold. Karen's case hasn't seen a lot of movement. It wouldn't be until 2014, seven years after she was found, that the Thurston County Sheriff's Office announced that they were taking another look at the case and re-interviewing people. According to the Olympian, investigators say that several people came forward to share new information at this time. Lieutenant Greg Elwin stated that Karen's investigation was no doubt impacted by her association with people who used drugs, stating, quote, Witnesses in these types of cases rarely ever want to talk to police. Again, they're keeping a lot of information close to the vest. It wouldn't be until 2019, when Detective Mickey Hamilton began working on Karen's case, that things began to heat up. Detective Hamilton actually isn't even officially signed to the case. But according to Carly, he's the best thing that's ever happened to it. Karen's case made a lot of waves when Detective Hamilton fought for Karen to be a part of the CrimeCon crowd solve event in 2019. If you aren't familiar with this event, essentially, guests pay a fee to participate in discussing the case in detail. Every participant is given a case file of sorts to work through. And with the guidance of police, they discuss theories, ask questions, etc. The goal is to hopefully see something the investigators didn't. It's a pretty popular event. In fact, actor-slash-singer Selena Gomez has participated in one of these events. Karen's case was never supposed to be presented. 
the original plan was to present Nancy Moyer's case. Detective Hamilton was working her case as well, but there'd recently been a major development in the case, so they weren't able to discuss all of the details they planned on presenting. So Detective Hamilton offered Karen's case as a semi-substitute. Karen's case was discussed for two of the three days the event ran. I know that events like this can be traumatizing, terrifying, and insanely emotional. So I had to ask Carly about her experience. I was terrified. Um, I had never done anything or experienced anything like that. I didn't even know there was a thing like that. I had never heard of CrimeCon before. I'd heard of like Comic-Con and stuff like that, but I've never heard of CrowdSolve or CrimeCon. Well, crowd the first... The crowd solve that I participated in was the first of its kind. I think they've done two or three since then, but this is the first crowd solve they had done. They had done CrimeCon many times before, but this was the first crowd solve. It was completely different. Um, there was some ups and downs, um, but it overall, it was... A really cathartic, very therapeutic experience. Um, I would not be sitting here talking with you right now if it weren't for CrimeCon. Because CrimeCon kind of gave me the guts to speak up a little more. I mean, I was I was talking about my mom always. I mean, since since the day it happened, I've been talking about it, but... CrimeCon really gave me the the power and the courage and the platform to speak and to realize someone was listening. Because you got to remember that I'm coming from the town where I called a newspaper and I called a prosecutor and they're not calling me back. And this is years and years and years going on. So I felt alone forever until... Crowdsaw. That was my first any type of anyone caring about my mom, anything. I mean, the newspapers never did anything. No one ever wanted to do a vigil. No one did n- nothing. No one ever had flyers. Like, no one had thought of anything. Like, and then after Crowdsolve, and I realized how many people were there for Nancy and they were there for my mom, too. I thought everybody was going to show up for Nancy. I, d- I didn't think anyone would show up for mom besides the family. I mean, why? Police don't care about her. The media doesn't. Who who would? I mean, realistically, like, I that's what I thought. And the outpouring of support and everything. People knew who I was the second I got there. I mean, it was amazing. People were like, Carly... Can I know I know you don't know me and I know it's inappropriate, but can I just give you a hug? And I was just in shock and dumbfounded and in awe. I could not believe these strangers, these strangers cared about my mom more than the police and the media and all the authorities that were supposed to. Love or hate CrimeCon? I understand what this meant to Carly. And after this event, there were countless articles written about it 
and in turn, Karen Bodine. But the thing about this event is that although participants do get to look at the case records provided by law enforcement, they have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. They also have to return all materials before the end of the event. So although this crowd got to see a ton of information about Karen's case, those records aren't officially public. So I can't speak to them. Which is honestly very frustrating. But the reality of the situation. According to Mickey Hamilton, there are over 1,000 pages in Karen's case record. But they aren't releasing them. Another very frustrating part of this case is that there's untested DNA that could help us solve this. And they have funding. CrimeCon offered to pay for the testing. According to Carly, they offered to pay for whatever they needed. But the sheriff declined. He said it wasn't fair to the other cases who didn't have funding. So, the DNA remains untested. In addition to this DNA... Carly told me that the seat that Karen was partially found on was never even taken into evidence. In fact, according to Carly, they didn't take anything that Karen's body was touching into evidence. So why they're not testing this DNA, why they're not using this funding that I imagine plenty of departments would be thrilled to have, I don't know. And I don't understand. But of course, I had to ask Carly where the case is today. We are cautiously optimistic that we may have found some loose ends. Um, he and I agree that this case is so close to being solved. All we need is the cowards, or I'm not trying to be mean, but you, you are a coward. Um, I was going to take it back, but think Think about somebody else for a minute, you know, what I just told you about how she died and how we're in agony. Stop being a coward and just come forward and say what you know. There's somebody that knows a little bit of something, because we're just missing a few little spots in the timeline. We just need somebody to come talk. You're not even in trouble. You're not in trouble. We just need you to talk. And this case will be solved. I mean, we're so close. So close. It's just right now, it's mostly circumstantial. And so if you take it to trial, it's very, like, iffy. You know, we want a slam dunk. We want this scumbag to go away. Like, it's been almost 15 years. I We don't want to lose our only shot. In addition to Detective Hamilton's efforts to solve Karen's case... Carly has dedicated her life to finding answers for her mom. This is what she does full-time now. She raised money as well as dug into her own savings to put up two billboards for her mom. She also has t-shirts, stickers, masks, and more. I know what it's like for this to feel all-consuming. To feel like your loved one isn't getting the attention they deserve. To feel like it's just one more article, one more podcast, one more interview until the big break comes. So, I had to ask Carly how losing her mom has affected her life. Um, it affects me to this day. It will continue to affect me. Um, that's the thing about 
when someone gets murdered, like that person got murdered. It was horrible. It was tragic. But their pain and suffering is done. Thank God. They are no longer in pain. They're out of the picture. They're happy and safe. But what about the family left behind? I mean, our souls are ripped out and murdered every day that she's not here. So that killer didn't just kill her. He literally killed an entire family. Because my whole family has been chronically changed by this. Their quality of life has been affected by this and it will continue like they've it's a domino effect it's the feather in the wind you can't take back you know um we've all had our ups and downs we've really gone through a lot um when i was younger i struggled with addiction for a moment Thank God I got out of it um, when I was young and before it got bad. Um, It's impacted us in so many ways. Emotionally, physically, I mean, you... You can't have your mom there on your birthday or on Mother's Day. Who do you hug? (laughs) You know, I mean, that's a physical thing, too. You know, it's not just mental and spiritual. I mean, it's... (sighs) They... They thought that they were killing someone that probably wouldn't be missed or didn't care that much or whatever. They didn't realize how valued and priceless she was to certain people and I hate to say I hate to say this but unfortunately the person or persons that killed my mother also have a family and so as much as I want revenge is it fair for me to take a family member away too because after I know what pain it causes is it really an eye for an eye like is that the right way to go I struggle with that one second I do want it the next I don't because I don't want another family to hurt like us oh I definitely don't want them to walk away scot-free absolutely please don't don't get that wrong they deserve they deserve Dante's nine circles of hell um ten times over. Um and that's just the beginning. That's just the appetizer for what they deserve. Don't even get me started. But that doesn't mean I have the right to rip someone else's family apart. But my mom deserves justice. She deserves for her killer to answer for their crimes publicly and announce that they killed my mother in cold blood. That needs to be done for closure and for history and fact's sake. It needs to be figured out. But at the same time, like, 
I, I don't want to cause any more pain, but I also don't want this sicko walking away scot-free. Who knows what he's done since then, or she, or whomever, have done since then. How many other families have they hurt and tormented? Have they hurt anybody else? I don't know. I surely hope not. Carly still lives near where her mom was last seen. In fact, she's now living in an apartment with her boyfriend right between Kevin and Jim's houses. There's no escaping this reality for her. Carly carries around her mother's flyers with her everywhere she goes, handing them out to as many people as possible. This brings me right to our call to action. Carly doesn't really feel comfortable outright asking for money, so I'll do it for her. She has a GoFundMe to help with ongoing case expenses. That will be linked in the episode description and on my website. But more importantly, Carly has another request. I mean, yes, donations always help, but what helps more than donations is talking about her, remembering her. KarenBodine.com. K-A-R-E-N-B-O-D-I-N-E.com. KarenBodine.com. She also has a Facebook. It's a mouthful. Justice for Karen Bodine, my mother's unsolved homicide. Um, I also, I'm very new, so please forgive me, but I also just started an Instagram account. Um, and that is Karen Bodine and the little underscore thingy and then cold case. I want to make sure again that everyone knows that my mother was the best mother she could be given her circumstances she did the very best she could not just as a mother but i think as a sister and a daughter and a friend i think i think she really tried her hardest and i think she was just caught in a moment of um of crisis like that's that's another thing i'm trying to advocate and combat is is crisis people are afraid to admit that are they're in crisis whether it be an emotional breakdown or your work is overwhelming you're being overworked or or trouble at home or whatever the crisis is people are afraid to admit it it's almost like back in the 80s and early 90s about depression, how it was taboo and you can't talk about it and it's bad for antidepressants. Like, it, it's not okay for people to be in crisis. And that's exactly what my mother was. She was in a crisis that was 48 or 72 hours before she died. She had just gotten in a huge blowout fight with her boyfriend. She was too embarrassed to call her mom. And she went down the street to where she thought she was safe, not knowing she was literally walking herself to her execution. And then to add insult to injury, the police don't even investigate properly. The case was literally botched from the beginning. And then the media doesn't even tell the story correctly. And they call your mom a homeless prostitute. And they print a mugshot without even asking the family for a picture. So please take a moment to share Karen's story, as well as support her family on social media. We don't have a lot of information about Karen's death. We aren't able to read the witness statements given to police. But we know that a human being is gone at the hands of someone else. 
We know that the police suspect that those who last saw her know more than they're saying. And we know that Karen Boudin has a family that grieves for her every day. We also know what media pressure can do for cases that feel like they are on the brink of being solved. So please take a moment and share. Karen Bodine was only 37 years old when she was murdered, and she leaves behind a devastated family. If you have any information about the death of Karen Bodine, please contact the Thurston County Sheriff's Office at 360-786-5500. But as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice. Hey guys, welcome to The Secret After Show. I don't have a lot to talk about this week, but I got such a good response from last week's Secret After Show that I wanted to give you guys a little something. If you guys listened last week, you know that I launched a new podcast called Disappearances, and you guys rallied behind it like crazy. It is currently the number one spot in true crime on Spotify. It's also the number two slot of all podcasts on Spotify. I could have never imagined, never imagined that me, me, just me, someone who was advocating for my sister just a few years ago, begging for anyone to listen, that now I have this platform where I can help these other cases. It really feels like some kind of crazy dream, I'm not going to lie. So I just wanted to say thank you. But as always, thank you for tolerating me, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time.